0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Joining us today is my good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And he's one of the world's leading analysts uh, on Russia, the Russian military, as well as unmanned systems. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Always great to be back. Uh, A pleasure indeed. And before we get started, our coverage of strategy and conversations with leading national security thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security thinkers, Andy Marshall, the late, great, and former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Uh, Sam, Uh, It was a pleasure having you and uh, Eugene Rumer of the Carnegie Endowment on last week uh, as we were uh, thinking through the second anniversary of Russia's latest attack on Ukraine and indeed the 10th anniversary uh, of of Russia's seizure, illegal uh, annexation of Crimea and and, uh, Ukrainian territory. Uh, Russia now appears to be feeling empowered as Ukraine's allies are trying to overcome what people are calling war fatigue. I have no idea what that means for people not doing any fighting, really, uh, and is actually an insult to those people who are actually doing the fighting and suffering under uh, Russia's brutality. European nations are trying to do more for Ukraine. Washington is still dithering over aid. There was a meeting uh, at the White House uh, yesterday that folks said was, is going to generate a meaningful result, and we'll see where we go, and hopefully we avoid a government shutdown and all of that. Zelensky has said 31,000 Ukrainian troops have died western officials say actually the number is probably double that we know what Ukrainian uh, we know what Russian casualties have been the blogger Morozov uh, who was pressured to basically appears to be kill himself uh, said 16,000 Russians died just just to take back Avdiivka um where, where are we on the front because there's this sense that the Russians are inching forward clearly they're pressuring the front where are we right now at that tactical edge on the battlefield, because it is a massive front, and the Russians are pushing ahead everywhere they can as the Ru- as the Ukrainians run out of ammunition. Well, you're right that the Russians are trying to push forward. Uh, the front
1: has remained more or less stable. There hasn't been any significant movement for many, many weeks. Uh, Russians are claiming that they're advancing around Avdiivka, inch by inch. Uh, of course, for them, Avdiivka was a tactical and a psychological victory. Uh, and um, the fact that a very prominent military blogger uh, is no longer alive indicates that truth spoken on Russian uh, social media channels or on channels that um, are essentially broadcasting to the Russian audiences is um, is a very dangerous thing to do. So Morozov did say that Russia wasted more people in taking Divka than in the 10 years that the Soviet Union um lost in Afghanistan. And yet again, it didn't really impact uh, Russian military force writ large. It didn't impact the public opinion. It didn't really impact the society. So you're right that uh, Russian president is feeling empowered because he really has no no direct challenges and no one to really question uh this uh policy in ukraine the ongoing fighting in ukraine which continues to waste russian lives as uh, i have indicated yesterday one of the more surprising developments over the past two years was the ability of the russian military to take so many casualties uh, we knew as a- an analytical community that russia is tolerant towards casualties but if Russia wasted between three to four hundred thousand people in two years, that's probably way higher than anybody could have estimated. And yet Russia is still here. So they will continue to press forward inch by inch. They will continue to broadcast very minor tactical advancements as something bigger than what it really is to
0: continue to build on the psychological um, impact of taking of Divka. And you've always noted that you know you always have to be skeptical about war bloggers, and you have a whole variety. you and the team have a whole variety of ways that you guys use open source information. But these uh, bloggers have been a very, very important source of information in the past. Morozov himself has come up in our conversations before. What you know, obviously, that was a message to everybody to not share information more broadly. What does that do for your ability and our ability to have uh, maybe a little bit of clarity and and inside gouge on on what's going on in this conflict from the Russian side? I think it remains to be seen. There's plenty of other Telegram channels which
1: broadcast tactical data on a daily basis. I think this may have been a signal uh, for all of these uh, Telegram bloggers and, and commentators not to provide sort of the larger strategic picture, not to provide um, information that encompasses the full impact of of Russian involvement in Ukraine, I think they will continue to broadcast whatever it is that they're working on, specifically whether it be uh, UAV development, whether it be uh, electronic warfare development, whether these are volunteer channels, uh, talking about assistance to the front or to specific units. Um, and uh, I think Morozov's death uh, will have an impact, but it will probably have a chilling effect, but not to the extent where all of these bloggers, all of these communities with hundreds of thousands and altogether millions of followers on Telegram alone are going to just stop writing about what they're writing about because they understand it. And the Russian government understands it, that oftentimes they provide a, a better better type of information about what is taking place in ukraine than any russian state network can again i think it's telling that most russian media outlets including state ones are actually on telegram as well and so i think um, some of this uh, information delivery will continue it may be in a somewhat more of a truncated form Some information indeed may not
0: be available going forward, but I think most of the information will continue to be provided. Um, I I want to take you uh, to uh, the military assistance side of uh, things. You and I have been talking about how adaptive Ukrainian forces have been trying to replace, for example, as artillery rounds have run short to increase unmanned systems, use different sorts of unmanned systems uh, in order to uh, manage to regain some form of upper hand and advantage, even though Ukrainian uh, leaders maintain for each one round we fire, the Russians fire 10, for each one UAV we have, the Russians are operating 10. Uh, if you do it thoughtfully, as you've noted, you, you can actually gain some degree of, of parity. And I think that's what uh, Zalushny was saying. Uh, you know, that, you know, given that we don't have the mass, we're going to have to create it some other way through 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 technology. Uh, Europe is trying to step up as Washington gets its act. In in order, um, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU uh, president, has has said that it's time to start using frozen Russian frozen Russian assets to help Ukraine uh, on the battlefield. That was sort of being seen as something held in reserve to help rebuild the country. But but Ukraine needs resources. Is there anything Europe can do to step up in the in the near term to 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 fill the gap left by uh, the the US not providing as much help? And then, does this hundreds of billions of dollars that's that's been frozen is that able to translate into immediate military capability uh, ultimately right i mean because it seems like the european factories are moving as quickly as they can it's just that it takes time to fill to to rebuild these capabilities where where are we on that side of the equation do you think Right. So the uh, actual assistance most
1: needed by Ukrainians is uh, physical assistance, weapons and systems and ammunition. It's uh, like you said, it takes a little while to ramp up um, the production. Obviously, going after financial assets, going after frozen assets is yet another signal to the Russian government, the Russian elites that they are... um, they're going to get sort of limited ability to navigate the global financial flows. But I think the Russian elites over the past two years have rebuilt a lot of their networks, have reoriented themselves away from the West and uh, from the United States and uh, its allies um, in in terms of investment, in terms of uh, economic or even personal activity. That's not to say that this is a permanent move, right? It's not like a lot of Russian... Uh, assets uh, will find the same dividends in, let's say, Iran or even Turkey instead of Germany or UK or even the United States. But what we've witnessed over the past two years is a rapid adaptation of the Russian economy, Russian industry, and those who who direct the Russian industry, including the economic elites, away from um, networks and away from, uh, I guess, ways of doing business over the past 20 years, to do something new, to uh, find new markets, to find new partners. How long that adaptation will last is a very good question. Uh, US economic pressure and sanctions pressure keeps increasing. But uh, right now, again, um, Russians are finding new ways to be inventive in uh, negating some of the advantages that United States and the West thought they had when it came to financial sanctions or um, other sanctions which were supposed to impact the industry and the economy
0: do you do the new 500 U.S. sanctions in the wake of Navalny's uh, killing uh, change that dynamic at all? Because as you said, the Russians have proved remarkably adaptive and our allies, frankly, have proven to be very porous, uh, right? I mean, some are playing both sides Uh, of the field. Turkey is helping circumvent these sanctions. India is helping circumvent these sanctions and a number of other Gulf countries certainly aren't paying attention to any of the sanctions Uh, almost almost deliberately. And the United States is very reluctant to impose secondary sanctions on some of these countries. Do the 500 new sanctions make any difference as far as you're concerned, aside from rhetorically, maybe?
1: Well, I, I think it's all about enforcement.
0: Right? How do you how do you
1: enforce these sanctions? How do you provide pressure? How do you enforce pressure on uh, all kinds of actors to um, follow through with the sanctions requirements? I think this is where um, we are going to see most results or no results. Right? Uh, and like you just said, it's it's difficult to enforce sanctions across the entire world because as uh, was probably evident before February 2022 and certainly after. Russia maintains trade with many countries around the world, which don't necessarily want to uh, adhere to uh, what the United States is doing economically or politically, especially with some of the biggest economies around the world, uh, both stable economies and the emerging economies. So, again, it's all about the enforcement.
0: Let me uh, just um, ask you uh, about other sorts of assistance that we should be giving Ukraine, Uh, right? I mean, the focus tends to be on hard military systems, and obviously they need that. Uh, F-16s are going to go into service soon. Um, I think also it was very encouraging that uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, said that Ukraine, under international law, is allowed to attack into Russia, uh, right, it has a right to defense and, and Russia is the clear aggressor here and Ukraine is, is a sovereign state. We'll get to that in a, in a second. Are we being creative enough as an alliance, uh, uh, Sam, to give Ukraine the tools it needs to build the capabilities it needs? For example, you've talked about uh, you know, how the Chinese are also playing both sides of this game. But if it wasn't for Chinese electronics, the Ukrainians would never be able to field the kind of drones they are. Are we, as a Western alliance, providing everything that Ukraine needs that is commercial in nature and not necessary? Right, as as military aid trips up and we wait for factories to come to capacity and Washington to come to its senses, are we doing enough as an alliance to give Ukraine sort of those commercial tools with which to build those UAVs and and those those systems? Do you think ultimately?
1: Well, uh, specifically about UAVs, this is what you and I have talked about the most, and this is where I can probably talk more in in more detail. Ukrainians are still relying very much on Chinese parts, and that dependence isn't going to go away anytime soon, especially when it comes to mass-scale FPV production in the many thousands or tens of thousands, as Ukrainians are planning there are indications that they're trying to develop certain parts um, in ukraine proper there are also indications that some manufacturers and some assembly efforts are going after similar components in western europe or uh, with other u.s allies but um, none of this is going to replace chinese de- uh, or rather dependence on chinese components anytime soon specifically because they can still be purchased in bulk at a relatively low cost And Ukrainians are very familiar with these components now so that they can very quickly and efficiently assemble these drones.
0: And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, HII, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Uh, Sam, let me uh, take you uh, to the question of how to further deter uh, Russia. Uh, Russia is still prosecuting its war aims. It's not incremental, uh, right? I mean, the 2014 uh, in, invasion was all about annexing territory. And then the subsequent invasion that started two years ago was was to go to Kiev and drive regime change. And ultimately, that's still the goal uh, of uh, Vladimir Putin, as he's repeatedly made clear. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron Uh, just days ago, suggested basing uh, European troops or troops from NATO nations uh, in Ukraine in a training capacity in an effort to deter further Russian aggression. Moscow responded, as it always does, furiously threatening Europe and Europe back down. And almost everybody in the face of sometimes this kind of Russian intimidation backs down, even though incrementally we have been changing the game and providing capability to the Ukrainians uh, that we would have considered inconceivable. And I think President Macron made that point. I would note Britain didn't withdraw its troops uh, from Ukraine uh, in advance of the Ukraine invasion and move them to the Western part of the country. Um, would the introduction of Western troops change the dynamic here, do you think? I mean, would the Russians risk going to war with all of NATO and targeting? I mean, I'm one of the people, and I think you and I, you, Michael Kaufman and I discussed you know, that, that if you left troops behind... Uh, it it could have changed the dynamic ultimately because the Russians might have considered fifty thousand Western troops in the way to be kind of problematic and maybe limiting in the scope of their operation. What's what's the sense? I mean, would that would that change the the dynamic and how quote provocative would it be? Because the Russians go ballistic over everything, and we've pretty much passed through every one of the boundaries that they've tried to set on us in terms of helping. Well, I think it's
1: worth considering what would happen
0: when NATO advisors who are going to train
1: Ukrainians are going to be killed. Um, Does that elevate the conflict to a whole new level? Does that keep sort of the fighting down to the tactical level? Do we consider, let's say, NATO and Western losses in Ukraine as part of um, the losses by the Ukrainian military? Or is this sort of uh, something else when it comes to um, how we view the level of NATO involvement and um, how we view uh, Western involvement. There were some indications that um, there were some volunteers from NATO countries fighting for Ukraine. Uh, Russians always talk about uh, a lot of uh, Polish soldiers fighting in Ukraine and Ukrainian uniforms and and other volunteers. But um, it's one thing if we're talking about volunteers from the West. It's another, if we talk about official military personnel um, in uniforms, actually training uh, the Ukrainians. So I think it remains to be seen. It's a politically fraught discussion. It's certainly going to set off a lot of um, alarms in the United States, especially in this election year, um, when aid to Ukraine is uh, is now elevated to one of the key topics in, in foreign policy uh, in in 2024 uh but uh it's not clear yet what direct impact uh, this will have on um on the fight and this would certainly um this would certainly uh essentially kind of uh allow russians to repeat their often said uh statement that they're not fighting ukraine they're actually fighting nato they're fighting the collective west so russians going after nato instructors for example would actually confirm Their worst fears. Um, But uh, again, it's not exactly clear how NATO countries would react to losses
0: of NATO personnel now directly involved uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Alexei Navalny's uh, wife has, has urged in an address uh, to uh, members of the EU Parliament, uh, you know, don't be boring, right? Because historically, the Russians are able to pull, uh, all, you know, think out of the box in terms of how it's trying to compound problems uh, for uh, the West, Then it's a nefarious actor, right? I, I'm still surprised that people are surprised. You know, we we were, I think, first to report uh, of uh, that there were talks underway to try to free Navalny, uh, and uh, ultimately the order to kill Navalny was was given pretty much as a slap to the face for all the nations that were, uh, you know, involved in these talks at whatever stage. You know, we were told there were somewhat more advanced. Uh, maybe they were not as advanced, but the message was still clear. The guy calling the shots uh, is is Putin. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's talk now of, uh, you know, uh, maybe a Russian presence in Transnistria, you know, the 1600 square mile uh, area that's between Moldova that's trying to get into the EU and NATO, uh, and, and Ukraine, uh, that is a uh, very uh, pro-Russian and the Russians have stirred up a lot of anxiety there. I think it was a breakaway Republican, like 1990 or something like that. How, how much more creative do you think Western nations, Sam need to be in? in in how we go about doing this, because each one of our responses actually is remarkably uh, predictable, isn't it? Right. I mean, we want to do something. The Russians go ballistic. We back off. We sort of inch our way toward there. But from the Russian perspective, they're just buying time. Right. They're slowing everything down. And as they slow it down, their attitude is, you know what I mean? It gives me another chance to survive. Right. Uh, As opposed to, sort of giving full aid, giving full sanctions, giving all the support you need up front. We've sort of metered it out, and we're, we're sort of playing to Russia's playbook. What, what's a different way of thinking about this as we get into the second year of this and are, are still surprised whenever the Russians do anything?
1: Well, you're right. We probably shouldn't be surprised by a lot of Russian actions. Uh, when the uh, Russian president changed the key goals for the invasion after the initial losses in 2022, that probably should have been sort of uh, an indication that uh, Russians are going to sort of bop and weave to use the boxing term um, to stay in the fight and uh, to uh, change their objectives so that they will continue to stay in Ukraine and um, Putin's goal was always to essentially uh, wait this conflict out to expand resources so that Ukraine and the allies expand even more resources and to maybe drag this conflict well into 2024 because he knows that us elections are a very fraught uh time of year and foreign policies are almost always discussed uh, by uh the political establishment as one of the key sort of topics um this year so uh you know i I don't have a good answer here Uh, i don't have a good answer on uh what happens next in terms of okay um Russia is willing to wait Russia is willing to waste lives Russia is willing to buck all the international trends we thought that they uh, wanted to follow uh, Russia is willing to be adaptable um, and S- Russia certainly doesn't care about Western public opinions especially when it comes to dissidents and um, and political prisoners so again none of that should have been surprising um, but again I think this is something that you and I talked about I think um, some, some people want to view Russia as a more Western-like nation because there were um, Western-like trends and policies uh, that were implemented in uh, in Russia over the past twenty years that actually benefited that country. Uh, and the fact that Russia is cutting those ties now and reorienting itself from sort of Western-influenced economic industrial and financial and political activity is probably very surprising and shocking to people who thought that Russia was more or less integrated in whole or in part when it came to some of those trends. So I don't have a good answer. I think uh, this war may continue well into 2025 as the Russians themselves have indicated. And I don't think we should wait for any significant unrest in russia or some kind of social upheaval in response to this continued dragged out war which is wasting so many lives and is uh, spending so many resources um this is probably going to be one of the more defining features in some of the political discourse in the west right how long can the russian society handle this how long can it tolerate this well it can tolerate this for quite a while as we're finding out and um I think th- I, th- I think i'll stop at this point um again many things that happened over the past two years were very surprising to me they were surprising to the russian analytical community in the west in general and uh, for some people in particular and uh, certainly um i was proven wrong in many of my assumptions and so have other people so sometimes there's no good answer and sometimes we have to take this one day at a time
0: um let me uh ask you uh two last uh quick questions as we as we wind down um you know there is a lot of focus there's been focus on whether or not the russians uh try uh, to install a presence in uh transnistria uh the breakaway uh, part of moldova again about 1600 miles between the two countries it's landlocked um i mean even even if uh right transnistria declares allegiance uh, to you know russia says it's a uh, you know a little bit like luhansk and donetsk uh do with a people's congress or whatever um and invites russian troops in can russian troops get there considering that to get there they would have to go through nato territory to do it or go through ukraine i think in order for transnistria to be any significant issue for ukraine russia would have to
1: ramp up its uh, force presence there and the fact that Transnistria is landlocked right now between Moldova and Ukraine uh, makes this very very difficult and uh, obviously all of Transnistria is um, is within the Ukrainian military's uh, range Um, and so it is very difficult to ramp up the presence in that particular spot for that military presence to be uh, a significant issue for the ukrainians who are very vigilant and of course moldova is vigilant and, uh, and and nato is vigilant as well russia has a very limited presence in transnistria and this outpost is is problematic because it remains one of the last frozen conflicts in the form of soviet union one of the last right. unresolved conflicts but it doesn't have a lot of resources that region does not have a lot of resources to um,
0: be of any significant consequence at least at least in this stage in the war uh and but as as you uh, as you pointed out many times right it's always worth paying attention to uh ultimately right because if the russians can find some weakness to exploit they will uh so vi- i think exactly the, exactly vigilance is called for um let me ask you one uh, last 30 second question uh any uh, new unmanned developments we ought to be paying attention to anywhere across this conflict and and beyond well i i think what is happening right now around the world is that there's
1: more and more news of ukraine type drones used in different conflicts such as in syria and uh, in sudan and so this knowledge is spreading especially the use of fpv drones and sometimes this knowledge is spreading with the russian advisors um, with their allies um, in africa and in the middle east and so we talked about this type of proliferation as a dangerous development going forward It wasn't clear until this point to what extent uh, this knowledge would actually proliferate, but we're seeing evidence that some forces uh, are now leaning on the knowledge uh, that was developed by the Russians in Ukraine um, or or by the Ukrainians themselves, and uh, they're now using um, their experience in um, in their own conflict. So I think that's a very troubling development, uh, but it's not probably spreading as fast as maybe some uh, some thought it would because it's still difficult uh, to ramp up FPV manufacturing and, and and pilot training basically from scratch because you need good people, you need people who understand what to do, you need uh, pilots uh, who can train other, other pilots, etc. It takes time, weeks, sometimes months, but we're seeing that this knowledge is starting to spread in conflicts around the world. And so we may reach a point where multiple conflicts, multiple state and non-state actors are going to be utilizing these type of drones
0: against each other. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Uh, looking forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Argo. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. And we look forward to you joining us tomorrow for the Air Power Podcast, where uh, JJ and I are going to be interviewing uh, the commander of the U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Tony Barronfeind. Uh, Thanks very much again for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow. And until then, have a great day.